1: weird studies. I'm Phil Ford. This week's show is on one of our favorite thinkers, Marshall McLuhan, and on The Book of Probes, a posthumous collaboration between McLuhan and the graphic designer David Carson. In what follows, we do a pretty good job of describing this book and Probes generally, so I won't spend a lot of time on that here. Instead, I'm going to ask you to pull up a chair and gather round as Uncle Phil tells you a story. About eight years ago, a group of students and I started a campus club devoted to performing what are called word scores, or event scores. The word score is one of the characteristic genres of the post-war avant-garde. Its widespread use in the 60s and 70s was due to John Cage, he of the famous silent composition 433, in which a performer does nothing at all for 4 minutes and 33 seconds, and the ambient noises of a bemused audience end up constituting the piece. At first, Cage wrote 433 in more or less conventional musical notation, but then he realized that he could just as easily write the word tacit on a piece of paper and call that the score. The composer Pauline Oliveris, whom we discussed in episode 42, took this idea and ran with it, writing a word score for a day-long event of street theater called Bonfire. Here is Olivares' description of it. Bonfire is intended for performance in a city, college, or university environment. All normal city or campus activity, as well as specially arranged activity, is part of Bonfire. Anyone who enters the city or campus during the designated but unannounced time of the performance is a knowing or unknowing participant in bonfire. Special rituals, activities, and sites described below are to be blended smoothly with normal city or campus activity, all during the normal working day and evening. The intention of bonfire is to gradually and subtly subvert perception so that normal activity seems as strange or displaced as any of the special activities. Thus the whole city or campus becomes a theater and all of its inhabitants players. Our little group performed Bonfire and orchestrated a number of special rituals, activities, and sights across the Indiana University campus one spring weekend, some of them suggested by Oliveris, for example, a silent protest march with blank picket signs, and some that we adapted or invented outright. In accordance with the score, we obtained some log drums and set them up outdoors, positioning myself and another performer in the wooded heart of the IU campus, where we attempted to devise a language trying to imitate words and phrases of the city's language. As Oliveras writes in her score... The main organizer of the event had also bought a monkish hood and robe from a costume shop, and I decided to incorporate it into my part. Thus was born the McLuhan prophet, a mad visionary loosed upon a peaceful campus, drumming ecstatically and from time to time holding aloft the book of probes to read the gnomic utterances found therein, his stentorian voice echoing across the campus, bearing witness to McLuhan's mystic vision of a sacramental reality reattained through our immersion in the field of sound. The passers-by were pretty tolerant, as I recall, mostly because they were very, very drunk. It was Little 500 Weekend. I rather liked the McLuhan prophet. He was thoroughly at home in Bonfire, whose Cagean ethos of participation in depth is also a McLuhanesque one. When you perform these word scores, you become aware of something vast and impossible to name that you are suddenly a part of, a process unfolding in a moment alive in its own becoming. Word scores are technologies by which we can experience McLuhan's elusive vision of a world vibrating with meaning beyond the printed word, which is to say, in the realm of the incarnated word. It is time for the McLuhan prophet to return. Earlier this week, I invoked his shade in a triangle of art and demanded a prophecy which he delivered in my backyard, alarming my dog and puzzling the neighbors. I was fortunate enough to have my recorder running and captured audio of this powerful magical working, which I now present to you, dear listener. Contemplate the revelation of the McLuhan prophet and carry it forth in your heart. writing, we have regained our wholeness, not on a national or cultural, but cosmic plane. A reading from the Book of Prose.
0: Right. So today we decided to try an experiment. So we're going back and kind of using an approach we used back in in the early days when we did the Heraclitus episode. So we have here a book that was published. uh, When was it published? 2000 sometime about what, 10 years ago, something like that?
1: It's about 10 years ago, yeah. yeah.
0: Called The Book of Probes. It's a collection of uh, gnomic utterances by Marshall McLuhan, and they are put to wonderful photographs and artworks by David Carson. So it's a collaborative work, posthumous collaborative work in the case of McLuhan, of course. And so it's got all these wonderful little gems, these wonderful little thoughts, probes as McLuhan calls them, accompanied by suggestive and provocative imagery. And we decided to just use a random number generator to select some of these probes and then we'll discuss them. Should we do a little bit of a preamble on what a probe is first?
1: Oh yeah, of yeah. course. Because I won't assume that people even have the correct associations. Helen was pointing out that people might think might see probes prominently featured in the title for this episode and think of like
0: gray aliens UFO. probing people.
1: Yeah, which is not exactly although not exactly the intended meaning. That's here. one possible version of the probe. Yeah, true, true. Um,
0: yeah, what, what a probe? Uh, what's a probe, Phil?
1: It's a mode of writing. Uh, it's yeah. my off the top of my head characterization of it. A probe is an utterance, short. Or speaking. Could be hmm? Could be verbal, could be oral, could be writing. It could yeah. be, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whatever the medium is, it is a way of stimulating thought. It's an utterance that's sort of on the model of a gizmo, a device, mm-hmm. or perhaps a toy something for you to play with something for your mind to play with yeah so for instance oh sorry yeah not well uh yeah finish your thought no 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 finish your thought please no you know me my thoughts just snake on indefinitely until somebody tells me to stop I always think by the way that if you and I were jazz musicians you would be Miles Davis and I would be John Coltrane
0: yeah that's And the reason I say that
1: I would be John Coltrane you are less long-winded And your utterances always comes out like with a certain kind of bittersweet emotion. That's how (laughs) I always think of it. Just like Miles Davis. Whereas John Coltrane has this obsessive style of playing where he has the chord changes of whatever tune he's playing as a schematic in his head. And he can see all the permutational possibilities of different things he can do within the space of the tune and within the space of the chord changes. And... You know, there are live recordings of him playing, for example, my favorite things, playing 80, 120 choruses, like going on these marathon solos. And apparently he would do this partly because, you know, every time he would go through a chorus, he would see, oh, what I just did in that chorus allows me to exploit this new potentiality in the chord changes on the next go round, the next turn around the track. And he would just keep doing this. And as a result, his solos are sometimes extremely prolix. And there's a story that Miles, da- he was talking to Miles Davis about this. They played together in the 1950s. Davis was sort of saying like, you're playing too much. Like we need more space. Right. In the Performances. And you're kind of crowding out the space. Hmm. And Coltrane said something like, uh, yeah, but, you know, I keep seeing all these possibilities, all these things I could do. How do I stop playing? How do I how do I do what you want me to do? And apparently Davis said something like, we'll just take the horn out of your mouth.
0: <laughs> uh, so where was I? <laughs> so I was, as a result, I was going to
1: interject with. Yes. Oh, you're not finished. Go on. So as a result, <laughs> you need to simply interrupt me and take the horn out of my mouth. That's what I was That's trying to saying. do. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, and, and yet I am very hard to derail Here I am, I'm still talking. (laughs) (laughs) It's like we're playing Uh, a game of chicken here. Conversational chicken.
0: A good example of a a probe is simply the, you know, the line, the medium is the message, right? So that would be an example of a McLuhanian probe, because it definitely makes a statement, but it also opens up all these possibilities. And the meaning of the line will change depending on which Context you apply it in. So if you apply like the medium is the message, well, you could think about that in terms of well. First of all, you have to wonder what a medium is, and that in itself is quite a complex and enigmatic question. When you consider what McLuhan does with that term, you know McLuhan. He's there's a great line here. There's an essay in this book by Eric McLuhan, his son, and someone else who helped him write this.
1: William Coons. William Coons, right. You're talking about the essay Poetics on the Warpath. Yes, it's in the book, The
0: Book of Probes. I am indeed. Uh, but the point is that for McLuhan, an idea wasn't a mark of identification that then became part of his being sort of thing. Like he, when he put forward an idea, he, in a sense, he was completely detached from it. He was fine with realizing later that idea wasn't adequate because for him, the important thing wasn't being right, but opening up new avenues of thought and possibility. Um, I'm trying to find the
1: line here. Well, right. I've, I've got one if you, yeah, if you, go if, ahead. if you want from early in this, essay Poetics on the Warpath, the probe is a means or method of perceiving. It comes from the world of conversation and dialogue as much as from poetics and literary criticism. Like conversation, the verbal probe is discontinuous, non-linear. It tackles things from many angles at once. So while the probes in these pages are adapted to discovery and awakening perception and illuminating situations, they are not useful in exposition or logic, which calls for linear prose. The probe resists any single point of view. The probe is a better form than expository prose for examining our time because it works by gaps in interfaces. McLuhan wrote in 1968 that one of the most obvious changes in the arts of our time has been the dropping not only of representation, but also of the storyline. In poetry, in the novel, in the movie, narrative continuity has yielded to thematic variation. Such variation in place of storyline or melodic line has always been the norm in native societies. It is now becoming the norm in our own society and for the same reason, namely that we are becoming a non-visual society. Correct. Yeah. So that's a nice little summary of
0: McLuhan's philosophy. (laughs) So I see the probe as a kind of positive apprehension of what we call the rift, usually. Like the rift is a gap or an interval that doesn't quite fit the structure in which it appears, right? That's how we talk about in terms of works of art. But once you pick up on a rift, which is a way of, uh, you can call a probe a rift if you're using a kind of logic of absence or lack, something doesn't quite fit there. There's something missing. But you take this signifier by which you know that something's missing and you make it something positive, then it becomes kind of a probe. So for instance, like Mm. in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, there's that line that I I mentioned in in my book where some characters are taking a walk and they're walking into town and they happen to look across the moors and then the moors kind of extend, Virginia Woolf says, into some sort of moon country. So then I took that line, the moon country, and and suggested that that's the key line for the novel. And that tells you that there's something lunar about this novel. This novel is not taking place in Northern Scotland. It's taking place in some kind of lunar landscape. And this little throwaway line, this little flourish at the end of a sentence on Wolf's part can actually be turned into a positive instrument for engaging in a kind of interesting exegesis of the work. And That's basically what McLuhan is doing a lot of the times, and especially, well, throughout his career, but I'm just the ones that I've read most carefully, Gutenberg Galaxy, Mechanical Bride, uh, Understanding Media, he's constantly just picking up on some kind of trash stratum-esque aspect of something and making it central to his inquiry so that the background, the invisible background of the work under discussion, for instance, comes to the fore. You can see more of what's going on in the environment of the work or of the situation you're studying than you would if you just followed the obvious signposts, right? So that's kind of how I interpret the probe or how I align it with my own kind of thing. So this book of probes is filled with these little rifts, these kind of like rifty, gnomic... Truths or semi truths or untruths doesn't really matter. That then, uh, when you consider them, just kind of call attention to what would otherwise remain kind of invisible to you your media environment, the background of things. You know, as Graham Harmon said, McLuhan is one of the few modern thinkers who really kind of focus on the background. He's a philosopher mm-hmm. of the background. I really like that way of, of framing his work,
1: which is an idea that we developed at length in our first McLuhan episode, which was an extended riff on McLuhan's best known probe, which you've already mentioned. The medium is the message. I really like how you characterized the probe in terms of the rift and understanding the rift, not only negatively as a lack or an absence or a lapse in meaning, but the emergence of new kinds of meanings, new possible meanings. Right. And, It's the emergence of that new meaning from a ground-clearing operation of suspending or even abrogating the conventional meaning. Right. So there's a two-step of destruction and creation or or ground-clearing and new meaning. I feel like something also, though, that's important to say about the probe is its relationship to truth. What's veridical? Like we have an idea, especially, you know, philosophical or academic discourse, that it is basically expository, that you are narrating or recounting some state of affairs. You're perhaps interpreting it, throwing it into new light. But the governing assumption in reading what you have to say about whatever that thing is, is that you're trying to make veridical statements. You're trying to say things about an artwork or whatever it is that are true, that in uttering them, the reason you're uttering them is because you believe them to be true and would defend them against competing utterances. McLuhan was not interested in playing the academic game of competing utterances. One of my favorite anecdotes about him is some journalist who is trying to pin him down in contradictions. This is something that journalists always did. They would notice that he would contradict himself from one probe to another, one piece of writing to another. Or he would say things that uh, frankly sounded silly or difficult to argue with a straight face. In any event, it was on some such occasion when somebody was trying to hold McLuhan's feet to the fire. He said, oh, you didn't like that idea? It's okay. I got others. Yeah. Which, if we were working on the usual model of like, you know, veridical utterances, the exposition of things that you wish to assert to be true, if we're going on that mode... If that's how we're evaluating his stuff, then he's clearly bullshitting much of the time. But the thing is that he's not interested in playing that game. He's much more interested in saying things as a means of getting you to think new thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, these things are almost like like little machines, little gadgets that are intended not to argue a point, but to get you to think in a certain way, from which point of view, one probe can be succeeded by another, even a very contradictory one, because the value of a probe doesn't lie in whether or not it's exactly true. So I have another quote from the same essay, Poetics on the Warpath. The authors are talking about The Mechanical Bride, which was McClune's first book. And they're arguing that McLuhan's interest in probes and that style of utterance began as early as this first work of his. And the authors write that a glance at any sample page of the mechanical bride shows the probe technique in the first blush of youth. The problem faced by any explorer, as he remarked later, is to invent tools, probes, not to make logical or connected statements. Because the probes in these pages are adapted to discovery and awakening of perception. What is said matters less than how the imagination is stirred. In other words, an inaccurate probe can work as effectively as one that is perfectly accurate. Yeah. So
0: I agree with all that. Absolutely. That's exactly what he was doing. But we have to be careful because I don't think that McLuhan saw truth as some kind of um, pr- like a uh, discardable idea. He's just that he had an idea of truth, which was that truth was somehow transcendent. So it couldn't be discursive. No single utterance can contain the truth. So when in that paragraph, when the word discovery comes up, that immediately implies that you're discovering, if it's not something true, then at least something real. And so the technique of probing, to me, is part of... An activity aiming at some kind of truth that we moderns have kind of lost sight of. And you get a sense of this in the essay when they talk about formal cause, right? That what McLuhan's trying to get to is the formal cause. So Aristotle famously had a, a quadripartite system of causation, which basically was just taken as dogma until the modern era when three of the four causes were discarded as irrelevant. Uh, only the efficient cause was. Was retained. So I'm not going to go through all of them, but the the most important, in a way, cause for Aristotle was the formal cause, which is the form of something. But the form of a thing isn't. You can't just find it by looking at just the thing. You have to look at what the thing is doing in an environment, how it's shaping an environment, what it accomplishes, what kind of telos it reaches. So. McLuhan being uh a thomist essentially i have a letter here a fantastic letter he wrote to a priest here in ottawa where he says i'm a thomist <laughs> you know so basically he's a follower of thomas aquinas still had this idea of cause to me i've always thought of McLuhan as you know when you try to imagine like it'd be so f- great to like take someone from the middle ages and like bring them into our era and just see how they interact with like the world i think they would if they brought at least a kind of educated scholar from the Middle Ages into the modern world, he would probably think like McLuhan. He was operating under that system of analogy, and sacrament. There's this kind of like play of signs at work in nature and culture that we are completely blind to because we've insisted on only one form of causation. That's just one kind of clumsy way of putting it. And I think he's trying to restore us to this more kind of expansive and to use Mackin's term, and it's a term that we've used before, a sacramental way of looking at reality. So it's not so much that he's a post-structuralist enemy of truth, And um, I don't think such a thing ever existed anyways, but he is more like interested in recovering, retrieving a sense of truth that we
1: have lost. Would you, do you think that sounds accurate to you? That sounds good to me. One thing I might ask as a follow-up would be, so what is that sense of Mackens, of uh, sacramental reality that you think is also at play in McLuhan? How would you define the sacramental in this context? I would define it as a sense of mystery and an affirmation
0: of mystery as the core of the real. That the ultimate truth, the source of the true, the good and the beautiful is radically, essentially, ontologically kind of mysterious. There's a great line in Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton where he he basically shows like a healthy person is a mystic, he says. An ordinary person is a mystic, a healthy, ordinary person. Here he's taking a job at all the scientists and philosophers who, who are trying to contain all of reality in their heads. He has this one line here where he says, um, he, he's basically challenging the notion that Artists tend to go insane. He says, in fact, it's the logicians, chess players, and mathematicians that go insane more often than not. I don't know if he had done some kind of survey to figure that out, but he's (laughs) making a point. His point is this. He writes, poetry is sane because it floats easily on an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so make it finite. The result is mental exhaustion. To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. (laughs) So, and then a few pages later, he basically says, okay, it's like all these attempts on the part of modernity to contain all reality in this rational schema are a problem. What keeps men sane, he writes, is mysticism. He says, as long as you have mystery, you have health. When you destroy mystery, you create morbidity. And then he says later, a mystic, and by mystic he means an ordinary person, allows one thing to be mysterious and everything else becomes lucid. So if you work within a purely imminent frame and you have an idea like truth, well, it won't be long before your idea of truth will destroy itself. And then you'll end up in the situation where some post-structuralists found themselves where they're saying there is no truth and that is true. It's a contradiction. The only way to make sense of the notion of truth, and I think it's the same thing with the notion of the beautiful and the good, is that you have to kind of realize that these notions, without which we can't function at all, are actually dependent on a kind of mysterious source that we can never access. But by accepting that there's this one mysterious source, Everything else falls into place, but also everything else now is kind of bathes in the light of that mystery. That's what I mean by sacramental. It's a worldview that in allowing one thing to be absolutely mysterious, like allowing the one thing you can't look at to be the source of light for all things, the sun, right? That's the platonic analogy. You allow this one thing to be incomprehensible. Therefore, everything snaps into place, but everything also shines luminously with this mysterious light that comes from the hidden, invisible, transcendent source. This is describing the basic Catholic outlook that McLuhan used and and kept in the background, the invisible background of his own thought, but brought to his work. And I think that the whole idea of probing has to be interpreted in light of that. And I think that's one of the reasons, for example, that a thinker whom I think McLuhan resembles very closely, Gilles Deleuze, in some ways, they write the same sorts of things, But Deleuze rejected McLuhan because McLuhan still held on to this idea that there was some transcendent source. And so Deleuze Mm. saw it was a narcissism of small differences, but actually it was rooted in a fundamental difference between Deleuze and McLuhan, which is that Deleuze absolutely rejected the idea of transcendence. He thought it was the death of philosophy. And so the the question was, what is a
1: sacramental universe? I hope that's a good sketch of an answer. That's very good indeed. I think it's worth noting that although you just presented this idea of sacramental reality and a Catholic register that would have been certainly the context for Mackin's ideas as a kind of Anglo-Catholic, and obviously a context for McLuhan's, nevertheless, you don't need to be Catholic to have some version of this idea at play in your mind. and. I think one way that we can kind of move this from McLuhan's specific religious commitments to a broader kind of idea of I don't know if I want to say mysticism, but sure, let's say mysticism. Global mysticism. It's
0: present in all kinds of all a lot of other religions, sacramental reality. It's just that it's the yeah, yeah, we're just left with Catholicism, but you could be a Tibetan Buddhist and or even Dogen, I think, has sacramentality in his writing. Um, oh, certainly, yeah. So I think I think a lot
1: of the I think a lot of the mysticism in Buddhism gets downplayed by, you know, the kind of the orthodox, as it were, party faithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, mysticism has a bad reputation. I feel that in the Zen world, there's always a strong attempt to make Zen seem very scientific and rational, to right. make it a fit within our own culture, which is fine so far as that goes. But if you really buy into that too much, then I think you're going to have a very one-sided view of Dogen. But I don't want to really, really talk about that. I want to jump back to a comment in the first quote that I read out of this essay, Poetics on the Warpath, where the authors say that the kind of foreshortening or fracturing of plot, of narrative, even of melodic line, the idea of artworks as things created out of linear processes that that the notion of that breaking down, they pick up on the idea that this is actually a manifestation of a deeper, broader transformation of culture from a primarily literate and visualist culture to a culture that is auditory, defined by auditory space. Which needs a little bit of unpacking to explain. Yeah. Um, But it's that auditory space or acoustic space, I think, was the term that McLuhan preferred. Acoustic space is a construal of the mystical, of the sacramental. And the line that I read that might have raised one or two eyebrows is where... The authors say such variation, like this idea of thematic variation as opposed to narrative continuity, such variation in place of storyline or melodic line has always been the norm in native societies. This is now becoming the norm in our own society and for the same reason, namely that we are becoming a non-visual society. And academic humanists in the present day betake themselves to the fainting couch whenever they hear a word like native, native societies. He says, that sounds racist, apparently. But what McLuhan is trying to do here is not have any kind of evaluation of lesser or greater, lower or higher standards of civilization, because he just fundamentally did not think that way. And when he talks about native, I realize McLuhan didn't, the, the passage I just quoted is not by McLuhan, but nevertheless, he would say things like primitive. Yeah, Uh, he always used the word primitive societies. That sounds like it's loaded with evaluation, obviously, but I don't believe that McLuhan ever intended that kind of evaluation. Or if he did, then we would have to understand that what he means by primitive is something that he's saying about our own culture right now, that he's asking us to understand a continuity between ourselves and modes of culture that develop before alphabetic literacy. Now, there are plenty of cultures throughout the world that in the 20th century had alphabetic literacy kind of foisted on them from the outside, usually by some colonial authority. But of course, what we call Western culture is a culture of alphabetic literacy going back to, I don't know, 7th century BCE in Greece. I mean, like alphabetic literacy goes back much earlier than that. But like the transformation, for example, in Greek culture to an alphabetic literate culture it takes place sort of between the seventh and fourth centuries, I think. And in fact, Eric Havelock, who is an associate of McLuhan's somebody who is often grouped with him as part of the Toronto School of Media and Communications, argues in his book, Preface to Plato, that Plato's Republic has to be understood. And it's a lot of its rifts and contradictions have to be understood as a manifestation of anxiety of somebody coming from a culture that's basically oral O-R-A-L and R L A U R A L. Yeah, The anxieties of the transformation from that to a culture whose psychodynamics, whose very logic is given by the alphabet. And the way that works is that, you know, think about how an alphabet works. You take a word, a word is a sound. You know, if you think about just the basis of language, we don't start with writing. That's a relatively recent innovation. We start with speech, with talking. And so for most of human history, until sometime in the Bronze Age, a word is always a sound. Mm -hmm. And meaning, therefore, is a function of an auditory environment. And what this means for psychodynamics is complicated. It's actually, a good book by Um, Walter Ong, it's a classic, Orality and Literacy, which really Mm. digs deep into this. And it's written in a much more linear and frankly comprehensible way than McLuhan's writings ever were. So I recommend it to your attention if you're interested in following up on this. The idea is like the ear has certain characteristics. We take in things all at once for one thing, as opposed to the eye, which tends to segment. It creates linear structures because your eye can't focus on multiple things at once. Your eye, naturally, what it does is it focuses. Of course, if you defocus your eyes, you can kind of take in a gestalt. But as soon as you're using your eyes for the kind of instrumental applications that we use our eyes for, like I want to pick up this book, I want to pick up this hammer, whatever, you have to focus. And your eyes focus on one thing at a time. It segments complex objects or any object or any phenomenon into a sequence of snapshots that are placed in something like a linear progression so the eye segments it picks and chooses it establishes the subjectivity of the perceiver as something separate from what is viewed what is viewed is always established in a relationship of perspective to the eye and compare all of these aspects of the visual to the aural. We have eyelids, but we don't have earlids. This is something McLuhan liked to say. We don't have even a biological means for marking a distinction between ourselves and a sonic environment. A sonic environment always already enfolds you. You're always a part of it. You don't think of yourself as like a separate being, like a little ball bearing rattling around inside a walnut shell or like an item on a shelf in a warehouse, which is the characteristic way that we Westerners think about our identity. No, in an auditory space, you are integrally a part of of the space you don't actually conceive of space and self as being in some way opposed it's telling so that e-
0: it's telling that in uh, uh, schizophrenia usually manifests in the form of aural hallucinations those are much more common than visual hallucinations and in fact i'm sure that a lot of our listeners have had the experience when you're falling asleep of hearing a voice and you actually hear yeah. it with your ears but it's in your head so sound is much closer to thought in a weird way um, mm. Than than, yeah. than images, it's really inside you. It's really. I, I'm just trying to kind of emphasize this point you're making that the the porousness of the self when you think purely in terms of the oral is quite evident. It's really hard to kind of separate yourself from. I mean, and you right. were saying about words, like words, not only were words not composed of letters at first, but were sounds, but they were like phrasings in an endless stream of sound. The word wasn't isolable itself. So when writing started for centuries, you didn't put spaces between words. You just strung words together with no spaces because it was just, it was the musicality of language you were trying to translate on the page. And later it became necessary when people started learning different languages and having trouble, they started to to separate words and put accents on letters. And you know they basically increased the visual aspect of language such that by the time we were born, we basically think of language as a first and foremost visual thing, which is very yeah. strange. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but
1: yeah. Well, this is something that's been on my mind for, uh, since I was a kid. I was just telling this story to somebody last night that I was actually in the learning disabled group when I was in elementary school, uh, when I was like eight, nine years old, eight, nine, 10. and I was never like diagnosed with anything. Eventually I was, um, <laughs> eventually they decided I was not a slow kid, but a gifted kid. Right. And Those that things can a look lot. very similar. Yeah. Uh, yes. And and so I was sprung from Durant's Vile in the, I mean, you know, Northern Ontario in the 1970s, not exactly a bastion of pedagogical progressivism. So it was an unpleasant few years. But the reason that I was there so far as I have been able to figure is because my relationship with language is so... So fundamentally aural. I think of words as sounds and visualizing words, performing that abstractifying operation where you take the sound of a word and you break it down analytically into a sequence of sounds, each of which has its own little glyph, its own little symbol. That operation of abstracting meaning into symbols, I had a huge problem with that. Actually, music helped me kind of like put my brain together so I could be useful, I right. could be functional in the world. Yeah. But this is something I've always been aware of is that it's possible to be a person with a stronger auditory orientation in which case you become very aware that what McLuhan was saying that we live in a visualist society is very true. Now, but the point is though that McLuhan believed that this was something that could change. He fundamentally did not believe in a progressive logic of history where one thing obsolesces another thing, which is then in turn obsolesced by something else, and those obsolete things never come back. As you pointed out in our previous show on McLuhan, one of the advantages of McLuhan's style of thought is that for him, nothing is ever really gone, Yeah, or at least you can never count something out, and for him, the big story is that after centuries of eye dominance of our sensorium being structured by the logic of the eye, where we understand things in terms of linearity and segmentation and specialization, that if the technology changes, if suddenly the dominant technology is no longer print, you know, the, like the, the uh, industrial dissemination of the alphabet in form of print, that's the Gutenberg galaxy, that's the inheritance of Gutenberg, For McLuhan, Gutenberg leads to a vast intensification of that visualist bias of culture. But for McLuhan, modern electronic technology, radio, phonograph, film, television, and had he lived long enough to see it, personal computer and the internet, all of these are things that however much they may rely upon literacy, both like in order to engineer television, you need to be a literate person. And also in terms of like, you know, the internet gives us tons and tons of things to read, right? Twitter is a typographic medium in a sense. But the point that he wants to make is that actually something like Twitter, in fact, inhabits acoustic space because the sense of a separate self, like a self separate from a medium of communication that analytical perspectival distinction you make between self and other points out that that logic begins to break down Mm -hmm. under the conditions of electronic media, that you have the same sense of all-at-onceness, the same sense of instantaneity and simultaneity that happens in small societies that are primarily oral, where words are always events and sounds, that we are reconstructing The psychodynamics whereby words are events and sounds—we're reconstructing that in nominally typographic media like Twitter. Actually, these are media that are re-instituting the psychodynamics of acoustic space. So when McLuhan would say, "Oh yes, we're becoming more like primitive man," is always the term he would use. He's not saying some kind of classic sort of racist shit where it's like, yes, we're becoming like savages with our new electronic technology. We should be reading Cicero instead or some shit like that. It's not saying that. He's actually saying like this is a in many ways he's saying this is a good thing and something that we need. We need to break from the prison, the tyranny of typography and visualist bias that. Mode of organizing experience that we associate with so-called primitive or so-called native cultures is, in fact, the wave of the future. It is the wave of now. It is how we actually live. That's what he meant by the global village. And
0: I think another point that bears mentioning is that because I think a lot of people will feel like I have in the past, which is there's nothing more counterintuitive than thinking we're moving into an oral culture because... First of all, we don't just read text still on the internet. It's not just typographic. It's also videographic. So you're always watching images. The eye has never been as strained as it is today. But McLuhan, when McLuhan talks about acoustic space and the primacy of the oral, he's not necessarily thinking that in the future, we won't use our eyes, but just our ears. What he means is that the acoustic modality is more conducive to a kind of synesthesia of the senses a kind of multi-sensory mm. experience. So obviously primitive, quote unquote, primitive man used his eyes all the time to hunt, to identify fruits and berries, you know, for all the stuff you we imagine, the eye was obviously absolutely essential and it will remain essential in this new acoustic age. But... There will be more synesthesia, more intermixing of the different senses, because the all-at-onceness of the acoustic, of the oral, also manifests as the all-at-onceness of the senses, because all of your senses are plugged into the real and and getting stimulus from the real. And so it's the neglect of the other senses by visual culture that he thinks was the good part of moving out of it. Like the good thing about moving out of a visual culture is that we get to do more with the eyes than we did before in a way. yeah. If you want to spin it in the kind of uh, progressive sense is that the eye can do things it can't do in a visual culture.
1: Right. Now, one last thing though, is very long loop back to where I started. And the reason I brought all this up is that if you want to understand what we're talking about as sacramental, what is sacramental about McLuhan's vision, understanding that it doesn't necessarily have to be a narrowly sectarian Catholic sort of idea of the sacramental, for those of you who might worry about something of that sort, that this understanding of the oral, of acoustic space is itself a way of figuring sacramental reality.
0: So what I've done here is I'm on Google and I've uh, called up the random number generator here. Um, okay. There are 400 pages in this book that contain these images combined with probes, or I guess the images and the and the writing together kind of constitute new probes. So I will now uh, generate a number, and you, Phil, you want to read, you want to find the page. A reading from the
1: book of probes. <laughs> 262, 263 is just an unvarying field of red, just block color of red. One page is empty of type and the other, on the right side, says, the pre-atomist multisensory void was an animate, pulsating, and moving, vibrant interval, neither container nor contained, acoustic space penetrated by tactility.
0: Ha, thank Thank you. (laughs)
1: Thank (laughs) you. So we've already explained this one. (laughs) Yeah, that actually just sets the seal on what we were just talking about. Yeah. Which is this idea of the acoustic space as sacramental. And one question that... I was worried that perhaps we still had left it vague as to how exactly what we were describing as acoustic space might be understood as sacramental. Well, that's what this probe basically is getting at.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting. This
1: this pre-atomist, in other words, we're in the world of acoustic space, multisensory void was an animate pulsating and moving vibrant interval. Okay, just thinking about that, animate, pulsating, and moving, vibrant interval. So this, to me, is an understanding of time. Yeah. I've been reading a book called A Philosophy of Madness by Christian Wouter Kusters. I'm doubtless pronouncing that wrong. But in any event... There's a passage that I was reading last weekend on time, and he was pointing out that there's basically two kinds of ideas of time, a kind of Aristotelian idea of time and a more vitalist, uh, he says, dynamic idea of time. And the Aristotelian idea of time is time in itself as a kind of background or something almost like a container. Like I was saying before that the Western understanding of identity is always as a self as an object contained by a container, like the universe ultimately understood as a kind of vast warehouse, and ourselves as items on the shelf in that warehouse. And the Aristotelian notion of time is one that views time in that way, that individual events or movements are unwindings of relative time within an absolute time that is a kind of unmoving, changeless background. Mm-hmm. It's the warehouse, whereas particular events or experiences of time are the objects contained within it. Now, the dynamic or the vitalist idea of time is exactly what McLuhan describes here: an animate, pulsating, moving, vibrant interval. Yeah, a, a moving now, an instant that is only separable from before and after by an. Action of an abstractifying mind that is understanding human life and experience of time, almost like a graph line that's being plotted as a series of points. And here, what McLuhan is asking us to understand is this different dynamic idea of time as a moving interval that is always animate, that is in a certain sense, alive, just as we are. And there is, in fact, no sure boundary between the life that I perceive in myself and the life that is in time.
0: Yeah. It's very similar to Deleuze's idea of aeon, which he opposes to the, the, the linear notion of time you just beautifully described as a warehouse, uh, which he calls chronos. Aeon is a time that is pure interval, It's interval because it is not a particular moment or a particular object in the warehouse, but the process by which any event whatsoever is always splitting off into a past and a future. It's a non-present. It's a futurity of the past and a pastness of the future. It's interval. And in fact, it just occurred to me that a great word that we might submit as the closest approximation of what the Greeks meant by logos might be interval. Interval as opposed to logic or reason or language or the word. It, because mm. the 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 word of God, you know, to use the kind of uh, biblical application of this Greek concept, John makes that analogy. He takes a Hebrew text that says, that God basically creates through speech. The speech doesn't bring something new into being, although it does. It does bring everything into being, but it also splits things. So it's not like McLuhan would say, I don't think he would say that, our normal perception of time is entirely wrong. It's just absurd if you don't include within it a more kind of, I guess, sacramental vision of time as all-at-onceness, as time in its kind of transcendent Mm. sense or in its aionic sense. So, and it's funny because at the end he says here, acoustic space is neither container nor contained, right? Acoustic space penetrated by tactility. And here we have the idea of synesthesia, that acoustic mm. space is also tactile space, whereas visual space mm. tries to isolate the visual and give it preeminence over the other senses to the That's detriment right. of our understanding of reality. And obviously, now as we look around to the detriment of the earth, yes. civilization, quite, culture, quite polite so. conversation, all kinds of things. All right. Right. So, wonderful first probe.
1: Couldn't yeah, have asked let's for another.
0: Better. Too linear for my taste, but perfectly, very helpful. <laughs> all right so let's i'm gonna generate another number now 68
1: so this is an extreme close-up of something and i have no idea what it is could be a typewriter could be the head of a razor cartridge extremely close up yeah it's sort of a little blurry and uh kind of abstract it's one of those things where if you take a picture of something and blow it up past a certain point, it becomes just abstract shapes. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's something grid-like about it. I think it is a typewriter or a
0: word processor. Uh, it, there's something grid-like about it. For the, When I first looked at it, I thought, oh, it's a sewer grate. And it looks like basically you could interpret it as text on a page. I'm just here going off the first word I, I caught, which is literacy. But anyways, it's a, f- a blurry, out of focus close up on some kind of object. And it's yep. mainly blue; the the predominant yep. color is blue. So, with that, it's a soft grid. Yeah, it's a soft. It's a grid, grid but yeah. it's
1: softened. Well, the focus this is extremely and- soft. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and the probe again. It's on the right hand side of a two page spread. Literacy, the visual technology dissolved the tribal magic by means of its stress on fragmentation and specialization and created the individual. That's pretty straightforward prose to me. I don't know. <laughs> it seems to me, though, that, yeah, we've definitely set some of these ideas up. But then the question is, how do you get the idea of the creation of the individual from this basic idea of acoustic versus visual space?
0: I think you, you, you did that in the last segment. I like the, I, I like the phrase tribal magic. I like that. It Mm -hmm. reminds me of our Exotica episode. (laughs) Um, True. So this is something that McLuhan discusses at length in, in Gutenberg Galaxy and elsewhere, of course. The idea of the tribal and of magic. And what he's saying here is that literacy, first of all, he describes literacy as a technology, which I think on his definition it certainly is, and I think most... Almost everybody would agree today. That seemed counterintuitive perhaps at first, but now we can see literacy as a kind of technology. And it's a visual technology. It dissolved the tribal magic by means of its stress on fragmentation and specialization and created the individual. Well, tribal implies a kind of collective identity, right? For better or for Mm -hmm. worse, that's what when we talk about tribalism. Or tribal cultures. What we mean are cultures in which the identity of a person is inseparable from the group identifier. So that you are basically just a member of a body, a limb in a body that transcends you. And it was literacy for McLuhan that split that, that broke the magic uh, participation mystique that allowed for tribal societies to function, broke it up by... um, Uh, emphasizing the fragments as opposed to the whole specialization as opposed to generalization. Yeah, that's how I would interpret that. And I think that's fairly uncontroversial, but probably thanks to McLuhan, right?
1: Yeah. Um, So many ideas that are part... It's like, you know, in that way, McLuhan's a bit like Freud or Marx. So many of our ideas that are just part of an intellectual vernacular. In other words, not ideas that we feel a need to attribute to any individual. A lot of those ideas, like Global Village, for example, come from McLuhan. I find that people are often surprised when you say, you know, then that idea actually comes from Marshall McLuhan. He's much more influential than people suppose. I want to stick on this idea of, first of all, so-called tribal magic, and secondly, uh, or just magic generally, and secondly, the idea of specialization. And I want to invoke the name of Harry Parch in this context. Harry Parch is one of the great originals of 20th century American composition. Parch was a composer who's best known for building all of his own instruments and building them according to scales, musical scales that are different from the ones that are used to construct almost all music that you will ever have heard in your life, which is to say music that has been Fashioned out of the 12 notes of an equal tempered scale. I don't want to get deep into acoustics here, but I will say that the scale, the way tones are tuned within the scale to give them regularity, so that every interval of, for example, what's called a minor second, which is the smallest interval in the scale that we use, every such interval is the same, no matter where you are in the scale. So between C and C sharp or between G and G sharp, those semitones will be the exact number of uh, Hertz cycles. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, yeah. It's an arithmetic division of the octave. In other words, the space within which a scale does its business. So Parch is really well known, not only for building his own instrument, but building his own scales, that dispense with this idea of a kind of artificial and abstract equality in order to build new tonal worlds that function in totally different ways. And again, I don't want to get into the the details of that, but the reason he did this, the reason he's, this what he's best known for, this outsider art who builds all his own instruments and not content to stop at that, even builds his own tuning systems. The reason he did that is because he believed that specialization is one of the fundamental problems of modern life. And so far as I can tell, he had this idea before McLuhan was writing about it publicly. He had it independently. And he would say something like, you know, think of a pianist, a piano player, like myself, for example. Like, I sit down at the piano, I open J.S. Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier, and I start reading it. Well, I didn't write that music, right? J.S. Bach did that. And I didn't build this piano. A team of craftsmen did that. Neither did I invent this piano. That happened, you know, back in the 18th century. I didn't devise the tuning system. I didn't do anything except one really specific specialized function. I sat down and I started reading the music on the page on this instrument that has been built for the purpose. And that's a very specialized kind of relationship to music. And by contrast with that, he imagined like a primeval relationship with music. How would you relate to music and sound if you didn't have all of that apparatus? And his argument is that you would have an experience of magic, the magic of sounds. And so Mm -hmm. in an essay from 1959 that he wrote, which is titled The Ancient Magic, he says... Ours is a time of scientific magic, and it would be great if one could say that insight is its invariable companion. But only in art, if it is truly art, is insight automatic. Art magic is something that we desperately need to replumb. The people who first stretched a piece of gut over two bridges, or found tones in wood suspended at the nodes, discovered magic just as certainly as the people who found tones in electronic tubes. Then, through art, they plunged intuitively towards an insight into the greater mysteries. Oh,
0: love it. It reminds me of this wonderful, wonderful scene from Werner Herzog's film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, where this archaeologist is sitting there with an actual flute that was found, a 40,000-year-old flute with a full pentatonic scale on it, and then plays a little tune that for all we know was played back in that time. And you can imagine what it was like for these people to create these instruments at that time with no notion of, you know, Hertz cycles (laughs) or just finding the intervals, finding the intervals organically analogically such that meaning Mm -hmm. suddenly exploded out of the world. You know, yeah. out of this instrument that they created. It's wonderful. Before we leave this page, uh, I just want to mention that another detail that you didn't we didn't mention when we described the image and stuff is that the sentence ends with a period that's actually in a square shape, so a square period, and it's mm. yellow so i would say that the square period is a kind of wink at the uh, impossible modern project of squaring the circle in other words of containing all reality in the human head and the yellow color would be indicative of the decadence of our particular of this particular project at this point yellow being uh, you know in the the aesthete movement of the 19th century yellow was connected with decadence and decay so we are coming at the, to the end of this Era of the individual created by visual technology.
1: Okay, very good. How about we do another one? 173. Oh, first place I flip to. The most human thing about us is our technology.
0: Hmm. Well, that's interesting.
1: And that is interesting, ha- isn't it?
0: What is that? What are we seeing here? There's some kind of painted surface with lots of zeros, lots of circles, but they're like ovoid circles that intimate zero.
1: It looks like a, some bit of printed matter, again, photographed at a magnification where it becomes a little abstract.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: It looks like something that has maybe been painted or stenciled on a rough surface, like a concrete wall. Yeah. So it has a kind of visual tactility. Uh, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Like it gives you a sense of tactility of oh, the yeah. surface. And yet at the same time, string of zeros, which is practically the emblem of the digital.
0: Yeah, the most human thing about us is our technology.
1: What my first thought about this is that um, to go back to this metaphysic of the individual as an object within a container, as an item on a shelf in the vast Amazon warehouse that is the universe that this is an idea that runs counter to that because that idea of the human always sees the human as something super added to nature there's nature and then there's the human and we make we say this like constantly we talk about pollution for example as a man-made as opposed to natural thing we talk about global climate change as man-made climate change as opposed to what would happen if a giant volcano erupted and sent a pall of ash around the world and and temperatures dropped, which happens fairly regularly in the history of this planet. We would say that that's a natural kind of climate change as opposed to man-made. But then when you think about it, human beings, we are fully a part of so-called nature. Like, yeah. to make that distinction is already to be making the, the error that resulted in this environmental crisis in the first place of acting as if the environment is something separate from us and therefore potentially something that doesn't have any claim upon us, mm-hmm. right? And so then from that point of view, like human beings create technology the way bees create honey, the right. way apple trees create apples, the way bears create mountains of shit in the woods. Like... <laughs> We exude technology. We secrete it. it. Hu- we secrete it. It is the most human thing about us. And the most natural thing is what we do as organisms. And that runs counter to the, the popular kind of trope,
0: the idea that what we're doing with the proliferation of technology that characterizes our time, often you'll hear something that the world is becoming less and less human. But in a way, the world's becoming more and more human. <laughs> you know, and the environments we're creating are anything but inhuman. The non-spaces that we've brought up before, Marc Auger's book, Non-Places, wonderful book. We we brought that up. I can't remember which episode it was, but we were talking about uh, non-places like airports and that sort of thing, which feels so inhuman. But in a way, only humans could build such places. They are mm. most indicative of a kind of fundamental human aspiration to predictability, control, order transparency, the things we kind of instinctively want out of this broken world, we create artificially in our airports and shopping centers by making them transparent and smooth. Where, And if you look at it the way that you were just framing it there, well, you could look at them as human as a kind of invasive species.
1: Yes, this is not me saying that therefore we shouldn't worry about the environment. Rather, it's to understand you don't need some apocalyptic scenario involving a supervolcano. We are the supervolcano. We are a destructive force of nature.
0: Yes, at least modern industrial civilization is. I mean, some anthropologists, historians are now saying that the problem started all the way back with the dawn of agriculture. I don't know. I think that the damage that was done in the last 300 years outstrips anything that was done in the 10,000 years you know preceding that previous. so some kind of uh you know sorcerer's apprentice event has occurred, and the brooms are multiplying uh, in, in and that, that might lead us to think that brooms are fundamentally wrong, but one broom is great, a million brooms multiplying <laughs> is very bad, so i I kind of draw a line there with modernity, but yeah. um I think that uh if modern technology is just as human as the technologies that precede modernity, then we have to think, well, what is it about this particular technology or this this particular set of technologies that make it so destructive or is it wrong to, is it, is it unuseful to look at it as purely destructive? Should we look at it in a more transhumanist way that these technologies are transforming us and transforming the world into something that we can't judge from an outside perspective that we have to kind of wait till it's happened. That's the kind of accelerationist view that somebody like Nick Land would say. It's like, we have to go through with this transformation. We have to speed it up. We have to accelerate it so that it happens because it's inevitable because in one sense, I agree with this probe that the most human thing about us is our technology. But in another sense, I don't agree with it. Or at least it really depends on how, which technologies we're talking about. I
1: don't know. One thing that your comment just now sparked in me is the thought that, that there's kind of no getting away from technology for us. Like it is our nature as technological beings like that's the kind of animal we are. That's the, the little part of nature that we represent is the part that makes technologies. It's what yeah. we do. Yeah. And from that point of view, then, you know, that is the thing that has given human society kind of uncontrolled and cancerous growth. Well, mm. if you have cancer you're probably not going to be like, yeah, I'm just kind of going with the flow. Right? Cancer is a part of nature. Like if you want to live a little longer, maybe you'll get the chemo. Maybe you'll get the operation to cut it out. But that's a technological operation. And likewise, it's just sort of like, it's not some sort of state of nature versus technology. If we want to imagine a state of nature that has us in it and also is sustainable and isn't going to like just fucking up and die on us, And we seem to be devoted to trying to make that happen. It's going to be through our manipulation of our environment. It's what we do as a species. We're going to have to keep doing it in such a way as to make room for other species.
0: Even de-civilization... Or rewilding, you know, those ideas. Even those would be applications of technology on McLuhan's definition. Exactly. So it's like we have to come to terms with this. We have to come to grips with our fundamental technological nature and the way that humans exist as a kind of enzyme that transforms matter. That's kind of what we are. And uh, we kind of have to- That's well put. We have to kind of embrace it. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. 265. What I'm getting here is a kind of rhizomatic diagram of different nodes. Mm-hmm. All the nodes consist of similar little square yellow circles that I mentioned earlier, hovering on top of what looks like a kind of distorted digital image of text. Um, yeah. Yeah it's hard to describe a little bit pixelated and there's abstract and on the left hand page you have a kind of network of these nodes this kind of this kind of rhizomatic structure there are square there are red squares and yellow squares and then you have one particular um line that kind of shoots off out of this network and crosses the right hand page which is basically just a white background and then and continues off the page. So basically a line of flight in the Deleuzian sense. I was just going to say, yeah. it's
1: the witch's flight, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But emerging from points on a line. Exactly.
0: Yeah. It's a very interesting image. Very cool. You want to read the text?
1: Sure. The greatest propaganda in the world is our mother tongue, that what we learn as children and which we learn unconsciously. That shapes our perceptions for life. So language
0: is a kind of um, uh, structure of power, structuring of power, right? If our mother tongue is propaganda.
1: That's cool. I mean, we can branch off of that and think about like the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. The idea that structures of language deeply inform cognitive abilities, like for example, even the ability to lie. So one thing that has happened a number of times, is people have tried to devise languages in which it is impossible to lie. And... I've read about this. I can't remember any of the details, but there is at least one language where it is actually from a formal and logical point of view, impossible to lie. It's also apparently an insanely complicated language, but people invent new languages all the time. And Esperanto is probably the best example of a language created out of a kind of utopian desire to create a language that would maximize the kinds of thoughts and the kinds of behaviors that we want people to have. Right. You know, so more truthful, more rational, uh, less prone to bigotry and... Uh, superstition. Yeah, superstition. The film Arrival, which I oh, believe is yeah. filmed by a Quebecois Yeah, Denis Villeneuve, director, yeah. yeah. The story yeah. is by
0: the wonderful... Uh, Jeff French, Chang. Jeff Chang, right. Excellent yep. writer, Yeah.
1: Yeah, and the whole idea there is that the aliens come and they have this language that is represented visually by these kind of circular sigils. And there's a linguist who's tasked with trying to understand the alien language because there's clearly something they're trying to tell us. And she realizes that their language is the way it is because they conceive time differently. They understand time cyclically they understand it like in terms of Aeon, the the, the way that McLuhan is talking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Where the past and the future are not cut off, but time is, as he put it in that first probe that we discussed. For the aliens, time is an animate, pulsating, and moving, vibrant interval. And the idea is that this woman, when she figures out this language, she begins to experience time in this way. Too. So it at least implies that the aliens don't just naturally inhabit this time. They created a language that allows them to inhabit this time, a kind of all-at-onceness, very much the time that McLuhan is trying to tell us yes. about. It's yeah. very interesting. And the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis informs the story because the idea is that language itself can determine even something as radical as how you experience time.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and the implication, at least the way I read the film, is that... We were always latently or implicitly or unconsciously living like that. It's just that we weren't aware of it. It's not like language transforms time. Language transforms our experience of time. But I think the idea in the film is that this language is superior to our languages. It's more adapted to maybe that language that the aliens bring is the non-propaganda language, the language that would Mm. get us out of the ideological ruts that any particular language that we now have uh, puts us in. Maybe not, maybe it's just another new propagandistic kind of way of looking at things, but I like to think of it in terms of a kind of utopia.
1: You know, Um, this is the kind of thing that Ursula Le Guin loved to talk about. She, you know, her father was a very well-known academic anthropologist, and she was very influenced by him growing up. And I think in a number of her, Books. Now, I can't actually th- think of a good example from any of her books, but in a number of her books, she really spends a lot of time thinking about the nature of language of the peoples that she's imagining. There's a novel called Always Coming Home, where I think she does a bit of this, where she thinks a lot about how even thinking of yourself as an individual, for example, is already conditioned by language, that there would be ways of structuring language. I mean, very crude example would be the absence of a first person singular pronoun right language you could imagine a language lacking a first person singular pronoun and just merely there not being a word for i or me mine etc like just not having those words would mean that your idea of identity would be fundamentally altered exactly this probe of McLuhan's is a very useful idea for somebody writing science fiction or fantasy
0: Let's do one last one, and this will be the clincher. 171.
1: Every mode of technology is a reflex of our most intimate psychological experience. Ooh, that follows somewhat upon the conversation we were just having, doesn't it?
0: Yes. Before we get to it, let me just try to describe this image. It's a kind of pastel, abstract background Again, we get the sense of something being photographed very, very close. It's very blurry. And on the left-hand page, there's this kind of swath of greenish yellow that fades into a kind of beautiful pastel blue
1: on the right. A kind it, of bottom of the swimming pool blue.
0: Yeah. And, you, and it feels like you're in a kind of foggy environment. I get the sense of fog yeah. or mist from it. Mm. And then over top that we have this, every mode of technology is a reflex of our most intimate psychological experience.
1: Can I just say, before we start trying to think about the probe as such, the decisions that David Carson is making consistently throughout this, the, the number of pages, layouts that seem to be something photographed very close up, where there's a change of scale, where the object is transformed from being a focal object. An object is a focus for attention, something existing at a fixed focal length for our eyes. It is transformed from a discrete object of that kind to an environment. Yeah, yeah, like a, co- a Like a color field. Yeah, and um, also a
0: kind of event. Um, I find that there's no way of describing these images other than uh, you have to kind of inject a kind of temporal... Dimension, like the way that the colors fade, and the way—I mean, that's true of all art—but it 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 dislocates the objects in a weird way and frames them in this new. And there's this idea of probing, of looking at something closely, of moving into something, right? That's constantly evoked in these images. So, Mm. what are your thoughts on the on the utterance, the probe? You were saying that every mode of
1: technology is a reflex of our most intimate psychological experience. Well, we were just talking about our most intimate psychological experience. It seems to me the most intimate psychological experience is the psychological experience you have all the time without even being aware of it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's what makes you feel like you're at home in your own life. You know what I mean? Being at home is a function of being, like being in and of, say, your house, the place that you live, is a function of being able to take things for granted Like walking downstairs and running your hand along the banister, and you've performed that action countless thousands of times in all the years you've lived in this house, and you're not even thinking of it. But your hand conforms to the banister, molds to the banister, just like a well-worn old coat is molded to your body. And it's that to me, at any rate, I'm basing this on nothing, but that to me is a kind of psychological intimacy. That's the level of intimacy. right. So if I understand intimate psychological experience in that way, what does it mean to say that every mode of technology is a re- reflex of that?
0: Well, it points to the instinctiveness of technology or the instinctual uh, uh, source of technology, which we were talking about earlier when we talked about technology as kind of the activity of a particular type of animal as opposed to the activity of a non-animal. That we, we, mm-hmm. we generate technology much like bees create beehives. So technology is a reflex of our most intimate psychological experience. Here I'm getting a sense of, and I don't know if that's where McLuhan was going, I'm getting a sense of Freud's idea, and this is obviously a key idea in McLuhan, that the technology is the extension of man. Right, right. That the shoe extends right. the foot, um, right. The phone extends the voice, and so what is most intimate is our bodies. Our psychological, our most intimate psychological experience is a kind of psychosomatic experience of the body. Mm. And the more we can externalize the body into our environment, the more that the world becomes human, as we were saying earlier. But also, the more comfortable the world becomes, uh, until it doesn't. <laughs> you know, until the enantiodromia yeah. happens, but. I think that this reminds me of uh, uh, some wonderful, wonderful passages in Dedeuze and Guattari's uh, Thousand Plateaus in the chapter on the refrain, where they talk about the idea of the musical refrain and it's connected to a basic architectural idea of creating a home creating a lair or a territory, how the animal creates a little home in this kind of chaotic world. And, And the home is a macrocosm of its little microcosm. It's reflective of its own physical and psychological potentialities. And it's an externalization of itself such that this little piece of the world then becomes a kind of extension of it. And that idea of home is maybe the kind of fundamental movement in the creation of technology, the first thing you do is you create a, what's the word I'm looking for? A habitat and not a habitat, but a, um, a dwelling, a dwelling. And maybe that's why it's so, this is another key McLuhan idea. It's that new technologies first occur and they are shocking and they're transformative, but very soon they become invisible. They fade into the background As our home expands, just like you're not aware of the banister, you don't need to be aware of the banister to use it or the stairs. You kind of just unconsciously move through your house like you move through thoughts in your mind. Um, Right. Much like that happens as our world becomes more and more technological, larger and larger spaces and periods of our lives are spent in a kind of unconscious state or in a kind of home state, which has its advantages because we're safe, but at the same time might have disadvantages because we're not aware it's like, how do you get off using gasoline, you know, for your car? It's really hard because of the comfort it brings and the utility it brings. It's really hard to know how we could extract ourselves or extricate ourselves from using
1: those technologies. Yeah. One more. Is, they're like Pringles. One. <laughs> you just can't Just can't stop. Yeah, exactly. Once you pop, you can't stop. Can't have just one.
0: What's that? It's not right. Pringles. That's uh, Lay's potato chips in Canada anyways. Uh, now I've lost the... generator. Here it is. All right. Last one. 183.
1: Now, visually speaking, this is a dense kind of cross-hatching of very visibly like computer-generated lines. It's like a kind of a twisted grid or like a folded grid. The dominant colors are... Kind of various shades of purple. Yeah. With some brown and um, taupe colors threaded against a white background. So, just as I got done saying that he leans heavily on a lot of photographed objects that stop being objects and become environments, this is totally giving the lie to that. This is a very different kind of image. This is an image of a digital hyperspace, some kind of Virtual environment.
0: Yes, with very sharp angles to the lines and very, very straight lines. Obviously, a digital a piece of digital art. And the line is, or the probe is, the bias of each medium of communication
1: is far more distorting than the deliberate lie. Which follows up, certainly, on the conversation we were having about the Saper-Whorf hypothesis and all of that the idea that there is a bias in communication and biases in communication are one of the fundamental themes of McLuhan's writing. Originally, you know, in The Mechanical Bride, he's thinking about advertisements as a kind of folklore of the modern. And he's thinking of all the ways in which advertisements are, you know, telling you lies or they're propaganda for something. And I think as time went along, he dropped that kind of, fairly typical mid-century hostility to advertising and popular culture and went looking for another way to think about it that would be a little bit less normative, a little bit less norm giving or, mm-hmm. or evaluation giving. And so moving from the idea of like a specific ad as something that lies to you to something much more general, an entire system of signification that will lie to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like that. It reminds me of um, uh, Harry Frankfurt's book on bullshit, where he draws a kind Mm. of technical distinction between lying and bullshitting. And it seems to me that whereas a liar and a truth sayer, let's say, are both operating against the same shared background, the lying is just going against, is saying the opposite of what he or she thinks they should say, the bullshitter is changing the background and is playing with the background. And that's what makes the bullshitter more of a trickster. If you think of Donald Trump and the way that he and his gang distorted the the kind of uh, institutional background against which politics was being played out until then, although I think the work was started before they came around. It's like, well, I can get subpoenaed to appear in court, but what if I just don't show up? Any attempt on your part to force me to go will be seen automatically as a partisan move. Therefore, I can ignore... The institution, the background has changed. Nobody's, and the people who are all about, uh, you know, exposing the lies are completely missing the point that it's the, the entire background has changed, the environment has changed, and those who are wise to that are the ones who have the advantage now. It's a very scary thought. But I think that that's what this line kind of tells me. It's that. A new medium of communication, because it becomes transparent, because it becomes, it's not transparent, but because it becomes invisible to us, we just take it for granted, we operate within it, it blinds us to whole areas of the real that we might have been aware of had we been using a different mode of communication. But of course, that different medium would have had its own blind spots. And it's just, it just draws attention to the need. I think that one of the central messages of McLuhan's work, which is pay attention to the background, you know? And that's what probes are for. Probes are ways of breaking out of the discourse of lie, the the truth versus the lie, the liar versus the, um, the honest speaker. And it goes deeper to the ground on which a particular notion of truth depends. And so the probe is a way of getting to that background, of getting to what others don't see. I think that that has become the work of our generation. I mean, how are we going to think this new background? Where are we going to find truth in that new background? If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, And, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.